chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verses 39 to 53. God's word in Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and officer of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out to me as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy, who enter into a magical world called Narnia that has been created by a lion named Aslan. But Narnia has been under a curse for some time, under a white witch. But now that the children and Aslan have come back, the curse is beginning to break. But then the story takes an interesting twist. For one night... The two girls, Lucy and Susan, have this ominous feel, and they say to one another, it seems as though something is going to happen to Aslan tonight. And so they go out into the night, and they see him walking in the distance, and they come up to him. But as they get closer, they realize that his tail hung low, and he walked slowly as if he were very, very tired. And as they got up next to him, they saw that his massive head was stooping low to the ground it nearly touched the grass and as he walked he even stumbled and gave a low moan and so the girls asked him are you sick he said no i am sad and lonely lay your hands on my mane so that i can feel you are there and let us walk like that eventually as they went aslan said you must stop here you can go no farther but you can watch and as they watched him go on they saw him come to a great crowd at what is called the stone table and there, many were there, shining torches with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. And right in the middle, Lewis writes, standing by the table was the witch herself. The fool, she cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. And Lucy and Susan waited for Aslan to attack his enemies, but he didn't make a move. Four hags sat on the edge and did nothing, and the witch shrieked again, go, bind him. And they went hesitatingly at first, and then when Aslan made no move, they went in. And they triumphed 
with shouts of joy when they realized he made no resistance. Then evil dwarves and apes rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion on his back, tied his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they'd done something brave. Though, as Lewis writes, the lion with one of those paws could have brought the death of them all. Now, the reader of the story is kind of shocked. Why would Aslan, the creator of the world, the powerful ruler, why would he allow this to happen? You know, in this night, though, the forces of darkness were allowed to abuse and destroy Aslan. And though the story at this moment is tragic, it captures something that happens in us, in our life. It's the reality that sometimes it feels like darkness is winning. It appears that what is going on in the world is showing that un, things that are unjust, things that are wrong are winning, and those who are trying to love and do what are right are losing. You know, Scripture is very honest about these feelings we have. Job is talking about God, and he declares in Job 12, God takes away understanding and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Earlier, Keith read Psalm 88 for us, and in it we heard, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. The psalm even ends with these words, You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Life can just seem dark. We talk about this when things aren't going well. We say life can be dark. We talk about the dark nights of the soul. And we wonder, is there any hope? Is there any light? And yes, we see this morning, but it will only come if darkness has its hour. If darkness appears to win, and today we are seeing that that appears to happen to Jesus. Luke is going to show us that on this dark night, Jesus was, and we'll see five things that's on the back of your bulletin. First, assisted by God. So first, there seems to be a glimmer of hope, but then the rest is darkness. Because then in verses 45 through 46, Jesus was ignored by his disciples. He was, in verses 47 through 48, betrayed by love. In verses 49 through 51, he's misunderstood by his disciples. And then lastly, in 52 to 53, he's arrested by the dark. For your listening enjoyment, I'll let you know that the first section is more larger than I think the other four combined. So if you're thinking, we're still not done with the first section... The last four come at a much quicker pace. But first, we see in this story a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of light, because we're going to see that Jesus is assisted by God. But let's remember what's going on. Jesus just had the Passover meal. He's just talked about it with his disciples, and now he goes out. And we know this was his custom to go to this place. We know from the other Gospels it was called Gethsemane. It's such a regular habit that Judas knows exactly where to bring the crowd later on. And once there, Jesus commands the disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. Now, here, it's interesting, Luke has this phrase at the beginning of this section and kind of at the end of the section. If you read the other Gospels, it kind of happens three times. Jesus goes to pray, he comes back, they're sleeping, and he says, 
pray that you may not enter into temptation. And yet here, Luke kind of makes it as a picture. He uses this phrase, pray not to enter into temptation, as kind of the heading. He isn't denying the historical reality that Jesus went three times, but rather he's doing this to emphasize, kind of as a big border. Notice this. Notice the border. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's trying to show us the necessity of prayer and also that God gives assistance to those who cry out in prayer. You see, Jesus is saying this because he knows the cosmic struggle that is about to happen with Satan. And he knows that he wants to destroy the disciples. We saw this last week. Satan wants to sift them like wheat, pick them apart, take them into pieces, pick them to pieces, we might say. However, Jesus prayed for them, and now he's saying, but you too must continue to pray. They won't be able to withstand on their own. They need God's help that he provides through prayer. So Jesus then went a short distance further, a stone's throw. Well, how far is the stone's throw? Well, that depends on who's throwing the stone. But close enough that the disciples can still somewhat hear him. And he falls on his knees. Now, the customary way that Jewish men prayed was to stand. If you read Luke 18, we went through that before. The Pharisee and even the publican went into the temple and they stood. And yet Jesus falls on his face. I don't think this is saying this is the holy way to pray. There's no proper posture you must get your body into so that God hears your prayers. But falling on your knees, probably even with his face to the ground, is showing something. It's reflecting the attitude of the heart that I am in complete need. I am in utter dependence upon you, God. I need your help. And Jesus specifically prayed. What did he pray? Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so let's kind of focus on those three phrases first. If you are willing. What's a challenging question? Is God willing? Was God willing for Jesus to not go through this? Now we have to be very careful how we understand this because we can end up turning God into a monster who delightedly rubs his hands as he meets out punishment or We can turn God into one who's wringing his hands anxiously. Oh, I want to do something, but I I can't. It's neither of those. Neither is it that Jesus got to the point of suffering and then goes, I can't do it. We know that because Jesus in John 10 is talking about the good shepherd. And in John 10, Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. So what is this showing by Jesus saying, if you're willing, take this cup away? I think what it's showing us is Jesus is not a stoic. Jesus does not look at suffering and go, well, this was all planned by my Father and me. So it doesn't matter what's happening. This is the plan. I'm just going to do it. There's no reason to get emotional about this. Sometimes we say stuff like that to our children. There's no reason to get emotional about this. It's just reality. Face the facts. And Jesus faces the facts, and yet it makes him weep. It makes his heart break. Sometimes Christians take the wonderful, freeing truth of God's sovereignty and then wrongly apply it to mean that, well, look, God causes everything to work together for good. You don't need to be crying. It's all right. And they implicitly, though maybe not explicitly, are somewhat implying Well, look, everything's actually good. Yet the phrase from Romans 8.28 is that God 
causes all things to work together for good. It is not that all things are good. We need to be clear. Evil is evil. Suffering is suffering. Can God redeem it? Can God paint this beautiful mosaic, this tapestry, that in the end we all go, ah, yes, but those threads are still dark threads. Those threads in the tapestry still hurt. And Jesus, when he gets to this point, realizes that this hurts. So we see from Jesus that in the midst of suffering, we can cry. We can weep. We can be emotionally distraught. And that is not in any way a lack of faith in God. In fact, it might be because of our deep faith in God that that's what leads to so much weeping. So why is Jesus emotional? Well, because this is the second phrase. He knows there's this cup, and he asked that he would take this cup from me. That's Old Testament language. The cup is God's wrath. We see one example, Isaiah 51. It says, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. Jesus knows that what lies ahead is not just emotional pain, though that will exist. It's not just physical pain, though it will be very real. It's not just the psychological pain, though that's going to be there. What is going to happen is that he is going to lose his eternally perfect relationship with his father. And instead of love, he's going to feel the father's wrath because he will take on the sin of the world. And so Jesus wants another way. But no other way is possible for God to be both just and the justifier. To be just and savior. Now to be clear, Jesus did not have to die in the sense as though God had to save us. Satan and the demons rebelled. God sent no one to redeem them. God does not have to show mercy and love. He chooses to freely by his grace. However, God can never choose to be unjust. You know, sadly, some people have wrongly thought, well, what happens is God just kind of decided, eh, I'm not going to punish those sins. I'm just going to arbitrarily move those to the side. Yet that's not at all. God preserves justice. He needed a sacrifice to atone for sin. You know, the whole Bible shows us that. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the language of the Lamb of God, the New Testament letters, Jesus' clear explanation of why he had to come are all showing us that a sacrifice for sins was needed so that the wrath of God, his just punishment for sin, would be meted out. And so Jesus' ensuing death will mean that he will endure God's wrath so that justice is served and we are saved. There is no other way possible for that to happen. At this point, though, we have to fight the desire to want to be popular. Because what I just said for the last few minutes is not a very popular idea. In fact, even many professing Christians will say, you know, Jesus is good for me, and that's how I relate to God. But you may relate to him another way, and that's fine. You know, we all have many paths to God. And yet to my professing Christian friends who'd say that, I I want them to realize that's actually a horrible thing to say about God. You're actually blaspheming God. Because think about what you're saying if if it is true that there are other ways to god then what kind of being is god to send jesus to the cross you imagine you go to the doctor and you've hurt your wrist 
And he says, well, we're going to have to amputate. So you go and you get your arm amputated, and then a couple weeks later you go back and you're talking to him. You said, well, Doc, you know, I know it was horrible, but there's nothing else. And he goes, oh, actually, there's another way. You could have just had PT. It would have worked. Physical therapy. You go, what? You chopped off my arm when there was another way? I'm gonna, that's malpractice. That's, you're a horrible doctor. Well, what kind of God would God be to send his son to die for the sins of mankind and then go, oh, Jesus, I don't know if you knew this. There was option B, C, D, E, F, and anything else. There were many ways to come to me. That's not a loving God at all. That's a harsh and cruel God. And so here we see that Jesus is coming to take the cup. A part of us goes, oh, but we don't like that. Except look at life. We as a people from our hearts cry for justice. We may not agree with everything that's been said about police brutality, but we all know that inside of us is something that goes, if people abuse their power, they should be punished. If you don't think people care about justice, go sit by the highway for about 30 seconds and watch how someone responds when they're cut off. They want justice. How do sports fans respond when a referee misses a call? They want justice. The thing is, when we have someone sin against us, we demand justice. But when we sin against others, we want grace. Because to go to that same sporting game, if you were on the other side and the ref missed the call, you kind of go, whew, glad you didn't see that one. You don't get upset. You don't care about justice when it's done against you. You want grace. And yet, we all have this desire for justice, and we have that because God has written his own character on our hearts. Justice must be served. And God, being a perfect being, will punish and make all sins right. But more than all that, as you come to understand the depths of God's wrath at sin, the more you'll actually come to understand the depth of God's love for you. It's it's very easy to say, oh, I love you. But what does that mean? The depth of those words only has meaning to the depth that you will sacrifice and do something for them. You know, God's love is not just empty words. He says, I love you, and he shows it by causing a disruption in an eternally perfect relationship. You know, the son had his relationship with his father torn apart so that he might bear God's wrath. That is what God's love means. That is why Jesus comes to this point of suffering and says, let this cup pass from me. But then he again He bookends it. He wraps it up. But not my will, but yours be done. So here, Jesus is longing not to taste the cup of the Father's wrath, but he longs to fulfill his mission, that their love might be shown, that they might bring many to taste of their love and not of the wrath we deserve. But then we see something really interesting. Look at verse 43, because there it says that there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now, no other gospel includes this. And actually, in your Bible, you might even have a little footnote to say not even all manuscripts include this. Now, for some people, oh, pff, clear evidence. Bible's just fabrication. There's all these manuscripts. Do we even know what God's word has said? However, let's examine some of the facts. You know, in ancient literature, 
One, I think the most commonly held, or the book with the most manuscripts is Homer's Iliad. It has 700 manuscripts. After that, the numbers fall really low. Dante's Divine Comedy only has 15 translations. And yet for the New Testament, we have over 5,800 manuscripts. One text critic Bruce Metzger says, in contrast with the figures for all other ancient literature, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of his material. Not only are there numerous manuscripts, but they are closer in time than any other ancient book. Whereas other ancient books have manuscripts from like a thousand years after the original writing, there are manuscripts within a hundred years of the New Testament. Now, we don't have any of the originals, but that's not a problem because even if we didn't have any of those manuscripts, we have sermons from early pastors. We have commentaries by early pastors and scholars. And we have other books. By those sermons, commentaries, and books alone, we can reconstruct the entire New Testament that matches what is in the manuscripts. So yes, let's be honest, there are times when we go, well, should this be in there or not? And we could dive into the academic discipline of whether this should be in here. But we see clearly we have been given an understandable, firm word from God that we can trust. There's no major doctrine where we're going, "Eh, is that really what's in there or not? And so we could go back and forth, but here we've been given a clear word from God. And so why is this included here? Why do we told that an angel appeared from heaven? Well, I think two things. First, it's showing us something again that we need to see, and that is that Jesus was both God and man. After Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we're told in Mark 4, 13, that the angels came and ministered to him. Here, he needs help. Well, why? Because Jesus was not just God who's like, I can do this thing, this is no big deal. He was a human who suffered he needed strengthening in his human flesh he was a real man along with this though second i think the angel is showing us that god assists those who pray jesus is in agony and what does god do he sends a clear helper to his son god heard jesus he responded to jesus and he assisted jesus in his time of need and god sends help in our time of need Now, to be clear, the angel did not remove the reality of what was going to happen. And Jesus will continue to pray. He'll pray even more intensely. He'll struggle. It says he will pray so intensely he'll sweat as drops of blood. Now, I don't know why, but sometimes Christians can't remember as and like don't mean the same thing as. I don't believe it's saying Jesus sweat blood. That could have been a possibility, but it has the word as. It was coming so much off his face like you got a bloody nose. Let's just drip, 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 drip. I've never sweat so much that it's just drip, drip, dripping off me. But Jesus here is in such an intense struggle with what's going to happen in wrestling and prayer that the sweat is pouring off as it's just drip, drip, dripping. And as stated earlier, this is showing that Jesus did not come to this moment with a stoic response. But rather, the more he trusted God, the more agony, the more despair that the coming suffering entailed. And so here we see a last little glimmer, a last little flash of light because everything after this is dark. And yet Jesus here 
we see that when he prays and when we pray that God assists, God hears, God responds to prayer. But now we have four sad events happen to Jesus. And the first is in verses 45 to 46 that Jesus is ignored by the disciples. Because in verse 45, when Jesus comes to them, he finds them sleeping. And it says here, it's due to their grief. They're so worn out. This long week, as we've looked at over the last few months, they are worn out emotionally in the grief of what's going to happen, though we'll see they don't fully get it. And so Jesus commands them again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. There is a spiritual battle that we must fight, and we have to fight it with prayer. You know, it's a battle that we will never win on our own strength, but only through God's empowerment. And as we'll see in just a couple of verses, their lack of prayer left them completely unprepared for what will happen. You know, sadly, Christians will even say things, they'll write things that deny this. Yesterday I was reading a statement from a pastor that said, the challenge in front of you is an indication of the power within you. Yeah, yeah. That's a lie. It's not true. The challenge in front of me and the sin within me is clear evidence that I do not have the power to do this. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you don't have the resources within you to handle this. You must pray for divine help. So pray. And yet the disciples don't get it, and they keep falling asleep. But they do learn their lesson. Because as we go into the Acts of the Apostles. We see in Acts 3 and 4 that Peter and John, they heal a man and they're preaching in Jesus' name and they're arrested and then the leaders release them the next day after warning them, do not preach anymore in this name or you will be persecuted. And what do they do? They went and they prayed. And it reads in Acts chapter 4 where their prayer says, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They came to see that, look, when there's threats, when there's suffering, they can't look within. They have to look up and realize that God assists those who are in need. And so Jesus comes to this greatest hour of trial, and he warns his disciples of their need to pray, to fight so they may not enter into temptation. But they are ignoring them. Sadly, in uh, the American church, we have become very passive in our relationship with God, in our fight against sin. It's as though many verses in the New Testament aren't there. And yet Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart and notice he began with take care brothers he's not talking to unbelievers here he goes on leading you to fall away from the living god but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and he's saying that can happen or first corinthians 15 1 and 2 now i remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And we could go on quoting other scripture after scripture that are warning us that there is a fight that must be fought. Yes, our confidence is not ultimately in ourself. That's why we pray. 
Because our confidence isn't in ourselves, but we neither go, ah, Jesus paid it all. He's won. Victory's done. I'm just going to coast. I don't need to be engaged with other Christians. I don't need to be praying. That takes a lot of work. I'm good. And Jesus is showing, no, there's a vigilance. Listen to my words. Pay attention. Don't ignore me. And yet, like the disciples, sadly, we often ignore. Eh, no big deal. And yet we must fight so that we might have faith. We must pray that God would continue to give us faith. And yet we see another tragic reality in verses 47 to 48, and that is that Jesus is betrayed by love. As we see in verse 47, while Jesus is still speaking, Judas leads a crowd of people up with swords and clubs. And then Judas approaches Jesus to kiss him. Now, many people have wondered, well, why did he need to kiss Jesus? I mean, everyone knows who Jesus is. He was in the temple each day. Yet, if you've ever been camping or if you've ever been to a fire at night, it's hard to see people. And so what do people do if they have flashlights? They shine them in your eyes. I don't know why they have to shine them in your eyes. They can shine at your chest. They'd still see you. But they shine them in your eyes because who are you? There's a light. There's a big fire. But they still can't see. And so Judas had a, okay, I want to make sure we get the right one. Because as we'll see, they really misunderstand Jesus. He might run away. And so I'll kiss him, and then you all grab that one so you don't miss the right person. And yet, tragically, this expression of love, a kiss, is now what is used to betray Jesus, sending him to his death. And so Jesus replies, verse 48, Judas, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, Jesus' question kind of has two barbs, two things that stick One, he calls Judas by his name. To hear the name of the one who he had followed for three years, Judas, will you betray? He's reminding him, Judas, you're not just any person. I chose you. There were crowds who wanted to be with me each day, and I chose you, and you're going to betray me? And yet notice something here. Jesus doesn't flee. He's not surprised. He doesn't then go, oh, man, what? i got to get out of here. He stays. He is submitting to his Father's will that he just prayed about. But there's another barb, because notice Jesus doesn't just say, Judas, will you betray me? He says, Judas, will you betray the Son of Man? You've looked at that phrase numerous times in Luke's Gospel. It's a phrase showing that Jesus is the human representative for all kinds. From Daniel 7, we know it's the one who is going to be domin- given dominion over all of the earth. So he's reminding Judas, you're not just betraying any person. You're betraying God's divine representative, God's son. And so Jesus goes through one of the worst things that we have to experience in life. And that is betrayal. You're having people you think are friends and loved ones and then your hour of need and they're gone. Or even worse, they turn against you. And yet Jesus is a merciful savior who understands all that we go through he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin sadly though the onslaught continues for now jesus in verses 49 through 51 is misunderstood by the disciples here they ask him lord should we strike them with a sword should we get out our swords now the way they ask this implies they think the answer is yes and peter is so confident of yes that he draws the sword And with the soldierly skill of a fisherman, cuts off 
Malchus, we know from other Gospels is the name, Malchus's ear. And yet Jesus says, no, stop, no more of this. And then he touched the ear of Malchus and healed him. This is amazing on so many levels. You know, first, here is another, another clear evidence that Jesus is from God. A man just had his ear chopped off. Jesus picks it up, puts it back, healed. I don't remember seeing that happen even in surgeries. We're not just coming to arrest anyone. Who is this being? And yet, they're so committed to their path that even another clear evidence before them will not divert them. The second, this is so amazing because it clearly shows Jesus goes to the cross. He controls the situation when it seems to erupt in chaos. He says, no, I'm going. I'm choosing to do this. They're not going to have to tie up all the disciples and tie up Jesus because he's fighting to get away. Jesus says, no, don't do this. I am going. Third, Jesus is showing his love for his enemies. This is what he taught, Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. No, Jesus is showing his love. He's showing he's no threat. He's no revolutionary. He's one who came to love, even those who hate him. You know, fourth, this is an amazing story because it's another clear example that what we have here is what actually happened. You know, sometimes people say, well, the Gospels, the New Testament, that's what the disciples believed afterwards, and they made all this up. Why would you write about misunderstanding Jesus? Why would you write about, yep, we slept the whole time. Oh, man, we actually then, so we all ran away. In Mark's Gospel, one of them even ran away naked. Why would you put all that in there if you're making it up? Unless it really happened. You know, the way to garner support from a future generation is not to show all your faults, is to present yourself as always being perfect. But fifth, I think this is sadly showing us that their prayerlessness left them completely unready for the proper response. Now, to be clear, their response was completely natural for sinful people. You hit me, I hit you harder. You say something rude about me, I say something ruder and more biting about you. I'm always going to do worse to you than you do to me. Well, that's natural for sinful people. But God calls us not to have natural responses, but supernatural, to love our enemies. And their lack of prayer made them completely unprepared. Instead of, you fight me, I'll fight you back, Jesus says, you fight me and I lay down my life for you. I'm going to return evil with good. You will imagine the agony Jesus must have felt that down to the very last minute, his disciples still don't understand him. I'm going to the cross. No one can take my life from me. Should we fight for you, Jesus? I don't want to fight. I'm going to die. Down to the end, he's completely misunderstood. And then last, Jesus the light of life will become, will be overcome because he will be arrested by the dark, verses 52 to 53. And Jesus kind of rebukingly asks him, do you come out to me as a robber? I mean, you got swords and clubs. The word robber was often used for revolutionaries. And Jesus has just shown them, look, I didn't come here to revolt. I'm healing your people who 
get hurt. However, they think, oh, we need these swords and clubs so we can arrest Jesus. And yet Jesus is having his swords put away. And yet this needed to happen to fulfill what Jesus even quoted just before in verse 37 of chapter 22 when he said, I must be numbered with the transgressors, that they must consider him just like any other sinner. And then Jesus goes on, shows the stupidity of what they're doing, the complete rebuke of what they're doing. Because look, he's saying, I I was with you in the temple every day for this whole last week. Every day I came from Bethany into Jerusalem. You could have arrested me at any time. Why did you need to come out here at night? And then Jesus says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Those words must have stung the religious leaders. The hour of darkness? We're the light. We're the religious leaders of Israel. We're showing people the path to God. We're not the darkness. But all they have to do is look around at the evidence. The evidence is there. They have to act by deception. They have to act at night. They have to use clubs and swords. In contrast, Jesus came in the light into the temple each day. He spoke openly. He had no secrets. And he tells his disciples to put their swords away. You know, the revolutionaries that did exist around Jerusalem lived in the hills, and they would come swooping in and then flee back to the hills, and they had to go out and hunt for them to get them. Not Jesus. He walks into their midst every day, and yet he is being treated as a horrible criminal. However, Jesus says this is happening, that evil may have its hour. The power of darkness has come. And yet even in that, notice the glimmer of hope because evil only has an hour. One day, millions of years from now, as we look back on all the suffering that we've endured, we'll go, oh, that was a dark hour. But think of all the good that has come. Evil is real, but it is not eternally going to be endured. And so now, sorrow has come. And God is allowing it to have control for a short time. And yet the amazing thing about the dark is that it presents itself as the light. And this is one area where I actually think C.S. Lewis got it wrong in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because it's not the hags and the dwarves and the ugly creatures that come to attack Jesus. It's the respectable. It's the calm and respected members of society. It's the intelligentsia. Evil very rarely comes wearing horns, a cape, and a bifurcated tail. Evil rarely comes in darkness. Evil comes presented as light. Oh, we're here to help. And yet, evil exists everywhere because Satan is trying to extend the darkness. And yet, as the angel of light, he knows how to cover it up so that the darkness is portrayed as light. So that hate is now seen to be love, and love is seen to be hate. That what is evil is now called good, and what is good is called evil. So Satan turns people, even religious leaders, into pawns of darkness while they think they're acting for the light. And in our life, the darkness can be so overpowering, so life-controlling, it seems, that we wonder, will light ever win? Sadly, the darkness wants nothing more than to pull us 
and pour more people into its destructive power. When I was a public school teacher, I got to know a student who was severely mistreated by her grandfather and then also lived in a very abusive home. Sarah and I were able to talk to her several times, but the darkness done against her led her to pursue dark paths that only made things worse. You know, d- drugs, they temporarily brought joy. It blocked out the pain of the past, but it went away. Running away seemed to bring hope, but it only led to more darkness. And sadly, the situation spiraled out of control. The darkness seemed to be winning, and the last I heard from her, the darkness seemed to have won. No, I don't have some great redemptive story that Sarah's in my involvement led her to the light. I don't know where she is, and I pray that even today God would work. And yet, I bring that up because at times, life just seems dark. Is good ever going to happen? Where are you, God? Why is this happening? And from our passage here, I think we can clearly say, though we don't have all the answers, we know that the answer is not that God is absent. The answer is not that God doesn't care. Bingham Hunter writes, God does not watch us suffer from the security of a painless heaven where all is bliss and joy. In Jesus, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our question, how can we pray to a God who lets people hurt, must be changed. The real question is, will we pray to a God who died for people who hurt? In Christ, God suffered alone, utterly and completely alone, so that you and I would never have to suffer alone. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You know, God could have just wiped his hands. We rebel in the Garden of Eden. I'm done. Tried to give them this beautiful world. Tried to bless them. Finished. And yet for all eternity, he planned for the rebellion that happened in that garden, for it to be undone in another garden years later. That he would begin by redeeming the world, by having his son endure darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane. God did not wipe his hands of us. He sent his son so that he would have hands that they might be pierced for us. He gave his son lips and vocal cords that he might cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cup of wrath that we deserve, he took on himself. And so darkness, it may seem to win, and yet we know the darkness could not overcome him. So may we be honest, may we cry at the darkness around us and the darkness within us. And yet may we have tear-filled eyes that look up and see the one who entered darkness so that we might know the light of life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need you. Lord, too often we think we have all that it takes to overcome, to do what we need to. And again, we're reminded that we are hopeless without your empowerment. Oh, Lord, we could not overcome the darkness in ourselves, by ourselves. We thank you that your son entered with us. Oh, Lord, there is so much suffering, so much grief. And we turn to you, the one who entered into it, with us and for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.